the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. After the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, which had nothing to do with Spanish people, nor was an influenza virus ever proved to have been responsible, an experiment was done with 62 healthy Navy volunteers in a Boston Harbour prison on Gallops Island. The goal was to try to understand flu transmission better, but the researchers were in for a shock. According to author Arthur Furstenberg, the outbreak actually began in the United States at the Naval Radio School of Cambridge, Massachusetts, with 400 initial cases. These men were highly exposed to radio waves, which is a point that we'll revisit later on. So this transmission study was conducted by a group of officers from the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Public Health Service, consisting of Dr. G. McCoy... Director of the Hygienic Library, Dr. Joseph Goldberger, Dr. Leake, Dr. Lake, and they were all on the part of the U.S. Public Health Service. The U.S. Navy supplied Dr. J. Keegan and Dr. Dwayne Ritchie, as well as the study's author, Dr. Milton J. Rosenau, who we will hear more from. Now, most of the volunteers were between the ages of 18 and 25, only a few of them around 30 years old. All were in good physical condition. Preliminary trials involved inoculation of what was then imagined as a, quote, culture of bacillus of influenza, because the notion of the flu virus had yet to take hold at that point, inoculated into the nostrils of a few of these volunteers. But the results were negative. No one got sick. Rosenau and colleagues became bolder and more determined and subsequently used 13 different cultures of so-called bacillus of influenza to infect a further 19 volunteers with. But again, no one got sick. The idea then was to try to infect the healthy sailors by contaminating them with secretions directly from men who had severe cases of the flu sourced from different areas or so-called outbreaks. Now, This disgusting experiment involved collecting mucus secretions from noses and throats of the sick men and swabbing it in the volunteers' noses or spraying mucus into the healthy men's noses and throats or even using a dropper to deliver it directly into their eyes. The men were held on the island for a full week and closely monitored for symptoms associated with flu, but none were detected. All sailors received at least two rounds of such treatment, sometimes three, as many of them were used in one trial and then another. So then Rosenau and friends decided to try direct blood transfusions. 10 cc's from flu patients were injected into healthy volunteers. Infection temps surely couldn't get any more invasive than this, and yet, in Rosenau's words, none of them took sick in any way. Next, they tried injecting 3.5 cc's of mucus into 10 more volunteers, but again, no one got sick. For good measure, 10 of the sailors were taken to the US Naval Hospital at Chelsea and into a ward full of men dying with flu symptoms. They drew near to them, sucked their breath directly into their own lungs, spent five minutes chatting with the dying man face to face, and finally the flu sufferer coughed right in the volunteer's face five consecutive times. Rosenau details the protocol, and I quote, 
The volunteer was led up to the bedside of the patient. He was introduced. He sat down alongside the bed of the patient. They shook hands, and by instructions, he got as close as he conveniently could, and they talked for five minutes. At the end of the five minutes, the patient breathed out as hard as he could while the volunteer, muzzle to muzzle, in accordance with his instructions, about two inches between the two of the men, received this expired breath and at the same time was breathing in as the patient breathed out. This they repeated five times and did it fairly faithfully in almost all of the instances. After they had done this for five times, the patient coughed directly into the face of the volunteer, face to face, five different times. I may say that the volunteers were perfectly splendid about carrying out the technique of these experiments. After our volunteer had had this sort of contact with the patient, talking and chatting and shaking hands with him for five minutes and receiving his breath five times, and then his cough five times directly in his face, he moved to the next patient whom we had selected and repeated this and so on until this volunteer had had that sort of contact with 10 different cases of influenza in different stages of the disease, mostly fresh cases, none of them more than three days old. We will remember that each one of the 10 volunteers had that sort of intimate contact with each one of the 10 different influenza patients. They were watched carefully for seven days and none of them took sick in any way. So, each healthy sailor slash volunteer, all 10 of them underwent this last process with no less than 10 different dying flu patients. Now, if we were going to find a way to deliberately contract the flu from someone, then surely this experiment would be it, right? You would think. It sounds reasonable enough if it is, in fact, an infectious condition. I mean, what else could they have done to mimic and exacerbate normal modes of supposed transmission between people? The only problem was that not a single one of the volunteers got sick. All 62 of them were completely unaffected. The doctors, therefore, had to do some hard thinking about what it means to have the flu. In fact, this style of experiment was repeated by Drs. McCoy and Ritchie on Goat Island in San Francisco with 50 different imprisoned sailors. The doctors were once again left scratching their heads because none of the 50 men took ill, despite their very best efforts trying. The scientists could only wonder what was causing the influenza influenza disease. I mean, how did these people actually, how do people develop it if person-to-person contact and swapping of bodily fluids wasn't doing it? And Rosenau here, I quote from again. As a matter of fact, we entered the outbreak with the notion that we knew the cause of the disease and we were quite sure we knew how it was transmitted from person to person. Perhaps if we have learned anything, it is that we are not quite sure what we know about the disease. End quote. So could it have been environmental sources of toxicity and stress that wrecked these men's health? We now know that a number of conditions that used to be thought of as contagious were actually the result of poisoning. Often our symptoms simply aren't caused by what we initially may think they are. For example, as the authors of Virus Mania tell us, in 1878, neurologist Alfred Vulpian discovered that dogs poisoned by lead suffered the same symptoms as human polio victims. Five years later, in 1883, Russian researcher Mizieski Popow showed that the same paralysis could be produced with arsenic poisoning. In Massachusetts in 1894, a spate of polio cases emerged, which was then traced to the introduction of the pesticide lead arsenate two years earlier in the area. Lead arsenate also contains heavy metals. Dr. Charles Cavalier, who was running tests at the time, stated categorically what was happening was clearly not a contagious disease. A toxin was the obvious culprit. 
Proving the point, later on in 1951, Erwin Esquith successfully treated the child suffering from bulbar paralysis, which is a particularly severe form of polio, using dimercaprol, which is a detox substance that binds heavy metals like arsenic and lead. And so to return to the flu experiments of Rosenau and colleagues, the explanation, once we wipe the superstition of infectious viruses from our minds, becomes increasingly obvi obvious. Influenza is not the result of infectious microbes passing between people. If we understand that stress and toxicity are almost always the root cause of illness, then what caused the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak? Well, put briefly, by 1918, World War I had been raging for four years. Historical context is usually important. The stress, hardship and privation it caused in that time was incalculable. Conditions for soldiers in the, in the trenches, say in France, were woeful. The American army bore the brunt of the flu with over one million soldiers impacted. That is 26% of their forces. The Germans, for their part, recorded over 700,000 cases of it. But wartime conditions were just one aspect of the stress load on millions of people at the time. Another factor was the mass poisoning of servicemen through vaccination. And no one was more heavily vaccinated than the US servicemen. And I quote, all soldiers received a number of vaccines against a variety of diseases they were thought likely to encounter, including rabies, typhoid, diphtheria, and smallpox. Another contributory factor was the medicines with which the ill and wounded were treated. As the prolific vaccine and medical researcher Eleanor McBean wrote in Swine Flu Expose from 1977, it was a common expression during the war that more soldiers were killed by vaccine shots than by shots from enemy guns. The vaccines, in addition to the poison drugs given in the hospitals, made healing impossible in too many cases. If the men had not been young and healthy to begin with, they would all have succumbed to the mass poisoning in the army. Additionally, as troops were killed, they needed to be replaced. Eventually, entry requirement standards had to be dropped to find enough men to keep numbers up. As the co-authors of the epic, What Really Makes You Ill?, Dawn Lester and David Parker point out that the lowest standards meant that newer recruits would have been less healthy and robust and therefore more vulnerable to the synergistic stresses of toxic vaccines and medicines as well as the appalling conditions of the battlefield. This is to say nothing of one very important factor rarely mentioned in medical discussion of history's so-called pandemics, and that is the crucial role played by psychological distress and trauma in undermining the harmonious functioning of the human mind-body complex. World wars have a way of creating emotional distress and raw survival fear on a scale that is virtually unrivaled, with commensurate biochemical disease ensuing. It's irrefutable now that the psyche massively impacts the body and is more capable of creating disease symptoms seemingly out of nothing. The psychologist Adler was perhaps the first to grasp this fact where even Freud only made it halfway there. And this truth is never clearer than it is in the science of German new medicine, which is the current pinnacle of mind-body understanding. It is worth noting, if only to revive our ever-so-selective collective memory, that through the 1918-1919 influenza pneumonia pandemic, and I quote, there were great numbers of cases of mumps, of measles, of typhoid fever, of sleeping sickness, and more cases of colds than influenza, as Dr. Herbert Shelton tells us. It seems likely that a massive amount of illness was simply brought under the rubric of influenza and miscategorized exactly as hundreds of thousands of cases of illness and death have been wrongly attributed to COVID-19 some 80 years later, as a recently censored John Hopkins study confirmed for us. 
And a recent CDC publication confirms the well-established strategy of grouping conditions together to artificially inflate case numbers. This has been done with flu before, and now they're doing it with COVID-19. So now the CDC is counting PIC hospitalization and mortality, PIC being short for pneumonia, influenza, and COVID. So they're grouping them all together and counting cases of pneumonia and influenza as COVID to artificially boost hospitalization and mortality numbers. The last thing the medical establishment was going to do, ultimately, was admit their role in any of the carnage, of course. And some things never change. As Dr. John Tilden, a reformed physician, said, and I quote, you cannot have a very severe round of typhoid fever unless you have a first-class physician to give it strength to down you. Now, invoking the imaginary infectious influenza bacillus and later the flu virus under the ever-mutating dogma of germ theory was obviously a very convenient way for the quacks to deflect attention from their very significant role in creating mass iatrogenesis on a scale that is virtually unbelievable. People forget that when doctors go on strike, patient death rates in hospitals tend to drop. Now, there were many cases of typhoid fever in military men, which is an embarrassing factoid that the medical men preferred to dodge, given that all those sick men had received the typhoid vaccine. Undoubtedly, many of the cases were likely to have been labelled as flu, just as many cases of vaccine-induced polio were categorised under less incriminating medical names such as AFP, Guillain-Barr, and so on. And that isn't all. There was also the bizarre episode of sleepy sickness, a.k.a. lethargic encephalitis, LE for short, which was an epidemic that occurred from 1916 to 1930, a singular event with no precedent and which has never happened since. Is it mere coincidence that this novel condition erupted during the flu outbreak while the war was on? It's reported that LE affected millions of people, primarily in Europe and North America, and caused hundreds of thousands of fatalities. When chlorpromazine was developed and deployed in the 1950s as the first neuroleptic drug under the trade name Thorazine, it was noticed, Dr. Peter Brigham tells us, by French psychiatrists Delay and Denica that small doses produced a neurological disease similar to the anomalous LE, which was erroneously believed by germ theorists to be caused by a microbe. Reminding us that toxicity is the real culprit here, not infectious microbes. As Annie Riley Hale reported in her very well-researched book, The Medical Voodoo, dating to 1935, and I quote, In the British Journal of Experimental Pathology, August 1926, two well-known London professors, Drs. Turnbull and McIntosh, reported several cases of encephalitis lethargica, sleeping sickness, following vaccination which had come under their observation. This led to the appointment of two commissions to investigate the extent of such happenings in England and Wales. Their reports published in 1928 revealed 231 cases of this sleeping sickness following vaccination and 93 deaths. Similar investigations yielded more or less similar results in all the war-scourged countries. The Holland government, when 139 cases with 41 deaths were reported there, suspended its vaccination law, which had been invoked for nearly a century. Even the United States Public Health Bureau, extremely reticent in such matters, admits 85 cases of probable or proven post-vaccination encephalitis for the period of 1922 to 1931. And that is a quote. Incidentally, it's worthy of note that the majority, if not all, of the post-vaccinal cases of encephalitis reported, and there were numberless cases, of course, which were never reported, 
followed the typhoid vaccination, for which such flamboyant claims have been made. End quote. But the typhoid vaccine was not the only problem. The smallpox jab also was linked to cases of encephalitis, as various of today's safe and effective vaccines continue to be, as Kernelone and El- uh, Engelbrecht tell us in Virusmania, another excellent resource, internal bleeding of the lungs was a frequently observed symptom of Spanish flu circa 1918. Quote, a phenomenon that was also described as a result of smallpox vaccinations. Eleanor McBean's family lived through the 1918 pandemic and were completely unscathed. Her first-hand report bears quoting at some length, given that she lived through it as a child. And I quote, All the doctors and people who were living at the time of the 1918 Spanish influenza epidemic say it was the most terrible disease the world has ever had. Strong men, hale and hardy one day, would be dead the next. The disease had the characteristics of the Black Death added to typhoid, diphtheria, pneumonia, smallpox, paralysis, and all the diseases the people had been vaccinated with immediately following World War I. Practically the entire population had been injected, seeded, with a dozen or more diseases or toxic serums. When all those doctor-made diseases started breaking out all at once, it was tragic. That pandemic dragged on for two years, kept alive with the addition of more poison drugs administered by the doctors who tried to suppress the symptoms. As far as I could find out, the flu only hit the vaccinated. Those who had refused the shots escaped the flu. My family had refused all the vaccinations, so we remained well all the time. We knew from the health teachings of Graham, Trail, Tilden and others that people cannot contaminate the body with poisons without causing disease. When the flu was at its peak, all the stores were closed, as well as the schools, businesses, even the hospital, as the doctors and nurses had been vaccinated too and were down with the flu. No one was on the streets. It was like a ghost town. We seemed to be the only family which didn't get the flu, so my parents went from house to house doing what they could to look after the sick, as it was impossible to get a doctor then. If it were possible for germs, bacteria, virus or bacilli to cause disease, they had plenty of opportunity to attack my parents when they were spending many hours a day in the sick rooms. But they didn't get the flu and they didn't bring any germs home to attack us children and cause anything. None of our family had the flu, not even a sniffle, and it was in the winter with deep snow on the ground. When I see people cringe, When someone near them sneezes or coughs, I wonder how long it will take them to find out they can't catch it, whatever it is. The only way they can get a disease is to develop it themselves by wrong eating, drinking, smoking, or doing some other things which cause internal poisoning and lowered vitality. All diseases are preventable and most of them are curable with the right methods not known to medical doctors, and not all drugless doctors know them either. It has been said that the 1918 flu epidemic killed 20 million people throughout the world, but actually the doctors killed them with their crude and deadly treatments and drugs. This is a harsh accusation, but it is nevertheless true, judging by the success of the drugless doctors in comparison with that of the medical doctors. While the medical men and medical hospitals were losing 33% of their flu cases, the non-medical hospitals such as Battle Creek, Kellogg and McFadden's Health Restorium were getting almost 100% healings with their water cure, baths, enemas, fasting and certain other simple healing methods, followed by carefully worked out diets of natural foods. One health doctor didn't lose a patient in eight years. If the medical doctors had been as advanced as the drugless doctors, there would not have been those 20 million deaths from the medical flu treatment. 
There was seven times more disease among the vaccinated soldiers than among the unvaccinated civilians, and the diseases were those they had been vaccinated against. One soldier who had returned from overseas in 1912 told me that the army hospitals were filled with cases of infantile paralysis, and he wondered why grown men should have an infant disease. Now we know that paralysis is a common after-effect of vaccine poisoning. Those at home didn't get the paralysis until the worldwide vaccination campaign in 1918. End quote. So while the cult of jabism deludes itself that today's vaccines are much safer than those of yesteryear, the evidence suggests otherwise. In 2003, a study by Dr. Rosenau was published in the Mayo Collected Papers. That's a different Rosenau, by the way. R-O-S-E-N-O-W. Published in the Mayo Collected Papers, which detailed the vaccinated guinea pigs quote, primarily suffered severe damage in their lungs, a typical symptom of tuberculosis and other diseases of the Spanish flu. So have we learned anything yet? This is just the tip of the iceberg proving vaccine harm, but a thorough documentation would fill volumes and many hours of video. So there are now over a thousand studies linking vaccines to biological harm. Moreover, the UK government recently put an urgent call out, and I use their term, urgent, for AI software to help track the expected large volume of COVID ab- vaccine ab reactions. So, <clears throat> repeat after me, safe and effective, safe and effective. I, I quote from Annie Hale again. As everyone knows, the world has never witnessed such an orgy of vaccination and inoculation of every description as was inflicted by army camp doctors upon the soldiers of the World War. Join with this the fact that the amazing disease and death toll among them occurred among the, quote, picked men of the nation, supposedly the most robust, resistant class of all, who presumably brought to the service each a good pair of lungs, since they must have passed a rigid physical examination, by competent medical men. Add to these the further fact that the highest death rate from tuberculosis and the greatest discharge from the army because of tuberculosis were among American troops in the camps at home who never got across the seas and whose disabilities could not therefore be chargeable to gas bombs and trench warfare. And the case against the immunising hypodermic as the author of their woes is pretty complete. In other words, it was vaccine poisoning. So while the virus hunters would have us all fixate on their chosen fetish of utterly unproved infectious microbes, particularly unproved viruses, as the culprits behind the masses of illness and death through the World War, an honest appraisal of the evidence yields a very different conclusion. The 1918 Spanish flu was the result of a panoply of factors having nothing at all to do with supposedly infectious viruses. These factors included stress and trauma, massive use of toxic medications, mass vaccination, awful and stressful living conditions, including malnourishment in the arenas of battle. Many soldiers also smoked and their diets were of a notoriously low quality. Damage to airways resulting from rubbing the throat with antiseptic preparations or inhaling antibacterial substances, chemical exposure to chlorine and other toxic chlorine-based gases such as phosgene and mustard gas. Joe Thornton tells us that Elemental Chlorine debuted in 1915 at Ypres and was followed over the next two years by the latter two gases, which were used at Verdun and Ypres. Nitroglycerin was also used liberally during World War I and also caused respiratory problems as well as headaches, weakness, nausea, drowsiness and vomiting, according to Dr. Claudia Miller and Dr. Nicholas Ashford. Wartime demand for machinery and weapons meant that more welding exposure happened. Welding and galvanised metal resulted in zinc oxide fumes being inhaled and leading to a flu-like condition featuring headaches, nausea, weakness, myalgia, coughing, breathing difficulties and fever. 
And now we have the point about radio waves and EMF pollution, and this comes from Arthur Furstenberg's book, The Invisible Rainbow. And I quote here, This epidemic spread across England and then across the Western world and then gradually stabilised until the armies equipped themselves with various high-powered radio transmitters towards the end of the First World War, triggering, as we've seen, the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918, which actually began in the United States at the Naval Radio School of Cambridge, Massachusetts, with 400 initial cases. And this epidemic rapidly spread to 1,127 soldiers at Funston Camp, Kansas, where wireless conditions had been, sorry, wireless connections had been installed. What intrigued the doctors was that while 15% of the civilian population was suffering from nosebleeds, 40% of the Navy had them. Other bleeding also occurred, and a third of those who died did so due to internal hemorrhaging of the lungs or brain. In fact, it was the composition of the blood that had been altered, as the measured coagulation time was more than twice as long as normal. These symptoms are incompatible with the effects of the so-called influenza respiratory viruses, but totally consistent with the devastating effects of electricity. Another incongruity was that two-thirds of the victims were healthy young people. A further atypical flu symptom was that the pulse slowed to rates of between 36 and 48, whereas this is a common result of exposure to electromagnetic fields. In addition, it was possible to successfully treat some sufferers with massive doses of calcium. The military physician, Dr. George A. Soper, testified that the virus was spreading faster than the speed of movement of people. In other words, that's physically impossible, so clearly it's got nothing to do with the virus. Various experiments were conducted attempting to infect subjects either by direct close contact or by inoculation with mucus or blood, but the experimenters were unable to demonstrate any infection by this means, as we documented at the start of the video, with Rosenau's experiments and so forth, and the replicated versions of them. So it can be seen that each new influenza pandemic corresponds to a new advance in electrical technology such as the Asian flu of 1957-58 following the installation of a powerful radar surveillance system and the outbreak of Hong Kong flu from July 1968 onwards following the commissioning of 28 military satellites for space surveillance at the altitude of the Van Allen belts, which protect us from cosmic radiation. And that is the end of the material from Furstenberg's book. So there is simply no need to invoke the idea of contagious bacteria or infectious viruses to account for the various illness and deaths that were misleadingly categorized as, quote, Spanish flu victims. Medical negligence, ignorance and arrogance were far more to blame. And who knows the effect, the true impact of the EMF pollution. I remind the reader that Koch's postulates remain utterly unfulfilled by all so-called viruses. The viral component of germ theory is not a medical model so much as a medical superstition. I personally would like to see us just be done with it and let it go. You can't catch the flu from someone. You can only create it from the inside out through stress, toxicity, and internal psychobiological conflicts. The cellular components that have been dubbed viruses are actually understood now as a response to these stresses, seen more as part of the cleanup crew and cellular signaling system you know, exosomes and so on. In other words, they are symptoms and reactions, not causes, just as firefighters do not start the fires that we find them at, but are in fact there helping to get it under control. There's also the fact that, as people like Dr. Barlando tell us, that certain cellular components are being misidentified as viruses, including things like ribosomes. So it's not just, it's not just that we're talking about exosomes only, um, but there's a whole host of reasons why we have such confusion around the identification of viruses. Now, Rosenhaus and colleagues' experiments 
proved a century ago that the most intimate contact was not enough to transmit influenza between people, no matter how sick the flu patients were. Blood transfusions, mucus in the eyes, mucus in the throat, in the nose. Isn't it time that we started listening? I mean, isn't that what the whole point of science is, to make progress and to develop our ideas and understandings on the basis of evidence? So, only dogmas don't change. We might like to ask ourselves when germ theory, particularly the viral component of it, became a dogma. When did it become a religion? The best science and medicine from now down to that which was suppressed since the 1800s invites us to stop scapegoating mythical viruses and to take responsibility for our health, to stop outsourcing it to corrupt medical authorities under the venal thumb of Big Pharma, and to stop pointing the finger at others and blaming them for the state of our health. For example, wearing a mask can no more shield you from a cold or flu than wearing a helmet can stop you from getting cancer. There is no correlation. Disease and health are inside jobs. You can't conjure them by wearing certain costumes, stage props or decorations. They are the result of your relationship with your environment, starting with your psyche and your general lifestyle habits. So asking the government to make you healthy is asking the impossible. And besides, they are in the business of population control, not health optimization. Mask off, folks. Brain on. And if you would like to see the full resources of this episode, I'll have them listed in the blog post, and um, you can find them all there. In the meantime, take care. Don't listen to the medical authorities. Look after yourselves. Use your brain. Think for yourself. Look at the evidence. Weigh it. Consider it. And turn the TV off. Take care. I've experienced censorship on no less than four different platforms so far, so if you'd like to help me get my work past the censors, please do subscribe and share it around for me. And also remember to join me on truth.network, which is the platform I created for our conscious community to connect and gather away from the censors after Facebook, Facebook shut down our page in 2018. So head over there, create your free account at truth.network, it's T-R-O-O-T-H, and I'll see you inside. Take care.